lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's podcast, I am joined by author and journalist Amy Knight, and we discuss the Russian intelligence services and political murder. Amy is the author of a number of fantastic books, such as How the Cold War Began and Orders to Kill, which is the basis of our conversation today. As you listen to this podcast, if you click on the image in your podcast app, you'll find a link to Orders to Kill. Also, there'll be more information on our website about Amy and her past works if you go to www.drycleanercast.co.uk. You'll find a page dedicated to this episode with show notes and links to her past work. If you like what we're doing, please become a Patreon subscriber. Your subscription helps me keep this podcast going by contributing to running costs such as website and podcast hosting fees. This podcast costs about £40 a month to run, so any donations, any subscriptions go towards those running costs. And hopefully you've noticed I've upgraded some of our microphones. I now use a lovely Shure SM58 for my side of the conversation and uh, I'm hoping that this has slightly improved things. I'm also using new audio software for mixing the episodes. And that is all thanks to the Patreon subscribers, which are Shane Whaley, Jeff Quest, and Thomas Lumo, who are current subscribers. And hello to Christina Hartland and Jens Nordberg, who are following the podcast on Patreon. I also want to say a thank you to some of our regular listeners, Nelson Inacio, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Alex Johan Gerdeson, Chris Kerjavan, Manny Gruel, Cam Dio, James Robert Brown, Nella Fabisi. I also want to say hello to Mark to Salamander, who follows us on Twitter. I also want to say hello to Penny Wint, who has been a long-time listener and a long-time supporter. Penny, I hope you're well. I also want to say hello to Miss Cherry Jones. And a special hello to John Cipher, former CIA officer. Hopefully I can get you on the show in the future, but we'll have to chat about that. But thank you for following the podcast on Twitter. So now time for a quick disclaimer, and then we will get going. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Amy, welcome to the Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you. Just for the listeners who are not familiar with your work, please could you just tell us a little bit about yourself. I began being interested in Russian studies when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan, and I majored, um, I majored in Russian studies, yeah. which had become a new field that opened up area studies. And um, I learned, as part of my program, I learned Russian, And I traveled to uh, what was then the Soviet Union in 1967 with a group of students and professors. And I uh, did not heed the warnings of our professors uh, and the people who were escorting us that we should be very, very careful about uh, mingling with uh, Russians. This was at at the time when the Cold War was really at its height. And, of course, um, we students didn't listen and got involved with some um, independent-minded, perhaps, dissidents in in Kiev. And I ended up um, getting arrested along with another, uh, with a group of students. And I was held for a a whole night in uh, the local KGB office jail in Kiev. And I was so interested, they were, they ended up, asking me all sorts of things about, you know, what kind of a car my father had. And and uh, they struck me as people who were not just policemen, but also I was just interested in the whole human aspect of these men. And um, 
so afterwards, I, I always, for it, it didn't come to fruition for a number of years, but I, I kind of made a study of the KGB my little niche. Um, and after I got my PhD and I was working at the U.S. Library of Congress as a, as a Soviet uh, affairs analyst, I, I delved further into the KGB, and uh, that's when I wrote my first book called The KGB, Police and Politics in the Soviet Union. Wow. What was it? So that must have been, I mean, God, that must have been really quite frightening being arrested by the KGB. You know, it's funny, and maybe I'm glossing over it now, but I was actually, I, I knew they, they weren't going to do anything to me because I hadn't done anything wrong. And um, so I, I, I had a feeling that they weren't going to keep me. But of course, they had arrested another student um, the summer before last. Mm. So that possibility was in my mind, but I, I kept just thinking this is such an experience that um, I, I really actually, you know, at 21, you don't worry about uh, things like you do when you get older. Yeah. Yeah, so you weren't worried you're going to end up on Glenarchy Bridge being swapped for a spy? <laughs> no, <laughs> I was I was not that important. Trust me. <laughs> well, look, um, today we're we're going to discuss um, Russian intelligence and their apparent use of political murder as a tool to silence critics of the Kremlin, both historically and contemporarily. Before we look at the current events, I'd like to just sort of look into the past. And before we even go into the past, what is political murder? Well, in my book, I quote Franklin Ford, who was a Harvard historian. And I think um, his definition is, is, is a really good one. He calls it homicide related to the body politic and its governance. And so that pretty much would include... Um, uh, uh, narrowly targeted assassinations and uh, maybe even random killings, all intended to intimidate political opponents. So these are killings that have a political uh, purpose. And But I also include in my book, um, I make it a broader term um, because uh, I include political murder to... Um, to encompass uh, state-sponsored terrorism for political purposes. Yeah. Russia's not the only country that's used sort of political murder as a tool, and though sadly it is a reality and part of the country's history. Can you talk to us a bit about the relationship between politics and murder in Russia's history? There's a very good quote from the French historian Helene Carrière d'Ancaz, and she she notes that Russia, 11, quote, 11 centuries of a history notable for its murders make Russia unlike any other country. Yes, people have, uh, historians have drawn attention to the fact that Russia has particularly violent history yeah. when it comes to murders for political purposes. Um, I, I don't think that Russians are, are by any means more bloodthirsty than other nationalities. But I think uh, there are several factors that, that this can be attributed to. They were um, occupied by the Mongols, who were, who were very savage and vicious for two and a half centuries. And they, Russia had a, had a large, vast territory that was very difficult to defend. And I, I think that this uh, resulted in, in more political uh, violence than perhaps in other uh, European countries. And um, then there was this whole problem of succession with the czars. And um, the czars tended to often use political murder as a way of, of solving uh, succession and, and political scores. I, I mentioned that um, even Peter the Great, who we all know for being a forward-looking, westernizing monarch uh, who is very enlightened, his regime was uh, was known to be uh, stained with blood. Political opposition was a continual feature of Peter's reign, and he used torture and execution to quell unrest and revolts. And um, even his son uh, and heir, Alexei, died under mysterious circumstances in 1718. Um, he was in prison in Peter and Paul Fortress. Uh, he had been charged with treason. And uh, there are quite a few historians who think that, that Peter was responsible for his death 
Peter the Great. And then Catherine the Great, her husband, Peter the Third, had only been Tsar for about six months before he was murdered in 1762. And uh, supposedly he died of a of a hemorrhoidal hemorrhoidal colic aggravated by a stroke. But um, there were a lot of rumors that, in fact, Catherine, his wife, um, had uh, uh, orchestrated a murder. So we don't we don't know for sure. And um, then Catherine the Great, who died in 1796, her son Paul became czar. But he actually was murdered in his bedchamber by a group of noblemen who uh, were concerned about his inconsistent and erratic ruling policies, and particularly those that related to international questions. His son, Alexander I, um, actually fell under suspicion for involvement in, in his murder, but we we never uh, we don't know for sure. So it it wasn't until the mid nineteenth century that um, Russia uh, became uh, more uh, more like European countries and and did not use succession as a means of solving um, political uh, or sorry did not use executions or murders as a means of uh, solving political issues. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it sounds, when you describe it, it sounds a bit like Game of Thrones a little bit, doesn't it? It's just yes, it's quite yes, a history. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, and also in sort of more recent times, the um, the Bolshevik Revolution is quite an interesting period because that's when they had the creation of the Cheka, which was the Russian secret police that preceded the KGB, if I'm correct. I think I am. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and, I, yeah, and that led to... Um, you know, sort of everything from it, quite a sort of series of political murders, even in that time. Is that right? Well, yes. Um, these were were not really secret murders by the Cheka, as much as basically a reign of terror mm. to suppress um, opposition to the Bolshevik regime. They, uh, the Bolsheviks, quickly found themselves sort of um, surrounded by enemies and the 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 principal way that they were able to initially ensure their rule which was to um commit acts of violence including execution against their enemies yeah and um and one of the one of the things that cropped up in your early part of your book was about the creation of these sort of poison labs in the 1920s and the sort of the use of poison in a lot of cases um historically um, against the political enemies, you've already mentioned a few, but it's, it's, it's just so interesting that this poison lab was sort of created so early in the kind of the the beginning of sort of the communist Russia. Yes, and um, interestingly enough, um, poison uh, has been an enduring feature of um, of the Russian um, uh, police and uh, secret uh, security agencies. Uh, you're right. They they use poison. It's it's believed, and again, we're talking about speculation mm. um, with with fairly good grounds. I'd give you one example: would be the death of uh, Maxime Gorky in uh, June of 1936. He was one of Russia's best known writers, as you probably know, and he'd been on very good terms with Stalin. But um, Stalin began to um, have doubts about the writings of Gorky, and um, it's believed that they that that uh, Stalin began to view him as an enemy, and so he um, he supposedly died of illness. But there's been a lot of speculation that the NKVD actually poisoned him. So that would have been um, the NKVD was uh, a successor to the Cheka, and uh, it was a secret police that was very powerful. At the time, it was run by Genrich Yagada, and um, so that's just one example of their use of poison. Yeah, and um, sorry, it was a case I've sort of forgotten the name where um, radioactive material was actually used against a former traitor and it was very similar to what happened to Alexander Litvinenko. Um can you remember who that was? It was Nikolai Hokloff. That's it. He yeah. was a KGB officer um 
who defected actually to the United States in 1954. Yeah. And um, he testified uh, before the U.S. Uh, House uh, Un-American Affairs Committee about the operations of the KGB. And undoubtedly, this uh, raised the ire of KGB officials in Russia. And when he was uh, visiting Frankfurt, Germany, in 1957 for a speaking engagement, Hochloff was poisoned by radioactive thallium. And this was the same material poison that at first was suspected in the Litvinenko murder, although later it was shown that Litvinenko was poisoned by polonium. But Hochloff lived, but it was, you know, a very scary episode for him. And and then, of course, there was another example of poison being used, and this in, this was in London, in the killing of Georgi Markov, who was a Bulgarian dissident working for the BBC. And it was a very famous institute when he was walking across Waterloo Bridge in 1978. And... Um, some unknown person came up and stabbed him with an umbrella, and he, of course, died. It's it's now uh, well established, thanks to uh, KGB defector Oleg Kalugin, that in fact the KGB supplied the poison ricin that was injected into Markov. Yeah, and it was in a little um, little pellet, wasn't it? That it kind of um, right. Yeah, that right. leaked out the rice and over time. You can actually see the um a mock up of the umbrella at the International Spy Museum in Washington. Yes. And and this is a this is something that that basically we know for sure <laughs> that this happened. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, let's um let's have a look at Russian intelligence today. Um, it's quite a complex picture, actually, Kriker. So, um, like like um, America, Russia has multiple intelligence agencies, um, and I'd like to just sort of do our best to kind of navigate as many of those agencies as we can. Um, and before we dive into that, though, there were two terms that popped up in your book, and forgive my pronunciation, it's probably going to be terrible. Um, is it Siloviki and Pitersky? Oh, God, Pitersky? So I don't know if I've got that Silovi- right. Soloviki and Pitersky. Thank you. <laughs> and um, Soloviki um, has been used um, so so commonly now that that um, it's almost taken as a given. But people, you're right. It's, there's a good question. It comes um, from the Russian word for strength, and it basically means um, the power uh, power agencies. Um, these are the people that actually have have weapons and can enforce uh, enforce their power. Um, and uh, this would include the police and the security agencies and also the military. But the military really doesn't figure in too much um, in, into the politics. The military, ha- uh, Soviet and Russian military, have, uh, have pretty much stayed away from politics. But, of course, you know, the Minister of Defense is a Silovic, uh, a man of power, but uh, when we talk about the clan that surrounds Putin, the group of uh, Siloviki, we're talking mainly about the police and the security, uh, heads of the police and security agencies. And then another term that's, that's often used um, are the Petersky. And these are, uh, this is a reference to Putin's allies. Um, Putin comes from, uh, he was born in then Leningrad, which has now been renamed St. St. Petersburg, and uh, Putin has had a tendency to surround himself um, with his allies from St. Petersburg. And so this is why, particularly the St. Petersburg KGB, FSB, and uh, so this is why the term, this is where the term Petersky comes up. It refers to the group of men that uh, were Putin's um, uh, friends and allies when he was working and living in St. Petersburg. Yeah, and then, as you were saying, these men um, sort of pop up a lot when we start to look at sort of contemporary Russian intelligence. They're all pretty much either in position as heads of these agencies or were former heads of these agencies. Um, and uh, just through looking at your book, you suddenly sort of see a pattern. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting. Um, I, I think Russia uh, today is very clan-oriented. 
and um, it, it, sort of like the mafia. They're also corrupt. <laughs> but, um, yes, there tends to be um, uh, a formation of clans, and the, and the, and the Petersburg Pitersky clan is, of course, the most powerful because that's a clan that's supported by, by President Putin. Yeah. Let's have a look at these agencies as you know as best as we can. Um, so, can you can you tell us about the the FSB? Well, the FSB um, it stands for Federalnaya Služba Bezopasnosti, or Federal uh, Security Service, and it was um, it, it's basically the most powerful Russian security agency. It was established in 1995 after we saw various reorganizations of the KGB, which was disbanded, as you know, in 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we saw the statue of uh, Felix Derzhinsky, who founded the Cheka, uh, being um, brought down forcibly by uh, a group of opposition Democrats. So after some reorganizations, we saw the formation of the FSB. And, um, you know, the numbers of employees are uh, are basically estimates, but um, it's estimated, we don't know for sure, but about 350,000 employees are uh, working at the FSB. And its, uh, its functions are are roughly similar to those of the second directorate of the KGB, which was the directorate or or service for counterintelligence. Pretty much, I mean, pretty similar to your MI5 or the American FBI. But the FSB, of course, is more powerful, I think, than either the American or the um, uh, British counterpart. Uh, its functions include counterintelligence, counterterrorism, which has become a huge, uh, a, a, a very important um, mandate for the for the FSB. Uh, they also are responsible for combating economic crimes, guarding the borders, uh, protecting government communications, which would be. Um, a, a, a separate function in in the UK and in America, um, and they're also responsible significantly for the security of nuclear materials and installations. So um, this is this is a very very important agency, and I'll, I'll just quote um, a Russian uh, expert on the security services, Andrei Soldatov who says, quote, rather than a revival of the Soviet KGB, the FSB has evolved into something more powerful and more frightening. An agency whose scope under the aegis of a veteran KGB officer extended well beyond the bounds of its predecessor. And of course, the veteran KGB officer he's referring to is Vladimir Putin. Yes. (laughs) And the... um... FSB also run a mass surveillance system, is it, and it's called SORM. Um, is there anything you could just sort of tell us a little bit about that? Yes, and this, is, of course, is something um, more modern than under the KGB, where the Internet wasn't a threat. But uh, for Russia and for, for the Kremlin, um, the Internet is, is a very, very um, formidable threat. And so they have a system uh, called SORM, standing for S-O-R-M, the acronym. And it monitors emails, internet usage, Skype, cell phones, text messages, and social networks. It is a very, very powerful system. And um, in fact, interestingly enough, in 2014, the Russian parliament, the Duma, actually passed a law requiring um, social media websites to keep their servers in Russia and to hold data on users for six months. So um, this gives the, the SORM system that is, that is overseen by the FSB uh, particular uh, powers. So um, I, this doesn't mean that Internet users don't have freedom to use the Internet. It's not like China but there is um, extensive surveillance 
although I have to say that it's uh, it's a challenge for the FSB. Yes, I suppose there's so much information they go through. Yes, and and the uh, the other well, the main challenge is that um, because of their economy. Mm. Um, and financial dealings, Russia can't afford to curtail the, the Internet to a huge extent because this would really threaten their economy. So they, they have to allow Google, for example, and all the other uh, servers that are, that are um, or systems that are, that are basically Western and run by, by Americans, so it's a challenge between um, censorship, which they would like to increase, and the need for openness for for its economy. Yes, yeah. And one last thing as well, with the it's worth bearing in mind um, with the FSB. Um, you mentioned in your book that there's no external oversight of this agency beyond the office of the president. Yes, this is true. Um, in KGB days, the Politburo. Um, had oversight over the KGB. And the KGB was actually, I mean, they were directed by the Communist Party leadership. They weren't a freewheeling organization who could do what they wanted to do. We don't have that anymore. There's no more, or sorry, Russia doesn't have that anymore. There's no formal mechanism for oversight as there, as there is in, uh, in Western democracies. Uh, the parliament supposedly has oversight, the Duma. They have a committee on, on security, but it has basically no, no enforcement capabilities. So this means that it's Putin and, and his closest allies who, uh, who control all the security agencies. Yeah, and, and the current head, um, Alexandra... Bortnikov, I'm practicing my Russian here. I hope it's right. Um, he, he's part of the the Pitarsky, the the kind of the Putin, um, Peter, St. Petersburg kind of clan. Yes, um, Bortnikov is um, another Pitarsky, as we would say, and uh, he joined the KGB in 1975. Yeah. He's um, uh, a longtime Putin loyalist. And he's obviously doing a very good job because Putin has kept him uh, in that post for quite a while since since he replaced um, um, Nikolai Patrushev, who was another uh, close ally of Putin's, and is now um, uh, in uh, head of the Sec- National Security Council. Yeah, so it's a very different pictures of the FBI or MI5 in many respects, isn't it? About the way it's sort of controlled and, and managed. Exactly. Let's have a look at the MVD. This one's quite a key security agency. Can you just tell us a bit about them? Well, the MVD, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, it numbers about a million two hundred thousand um, uh, employees. And um, it's a it's a very it's pretty we call it the regular police in Russia. It's not the security police, but um, they're very important. Uh, the MVD is a very important agency. It's it uh, conducts criminal investigations, as does the FSB, mm-hmm. and um, it also um, um, played a very important role in the war in Chechnya because its uh, internal troops, which number about two hundred thousand were um were key to suppressing separatism in Chechnya. Yeah. Um the head of the MVD was a man named uh, Rashid Nirgalyaev who was also a St. Petersburg clan. He served as head of MVD until 2012 and then he was replaced with uh, a man named Viktor Kolokoltsev who is still remains head of the MVD. Yeah. And um, Viktor Solotov, what was his connection to the MVD? Well, um, he for a while was the, the first deputy um, uh, head of the MVD before he, um, before he became head of the National Guard, which was created in 2016. And um, <laughs> he was tied to a St. Petersburg firm which was basically um or a St. Petersburg gang which was basically part of the Russian mafia um called the Tambov game and he um was connected with a private security firm uh 
called Baltique Escort that acted as a liaison between the government and the Russian mafia. So Zolotov is very close to Putin, and he's also very close to the Russian uh, St. Petersburg mafia. Yeah. And he supposedly drew up a list, a hit list of opponents to Putin um, and his associates that the government was supposed to kill. And it was quite an extensive list from what I remember. Right. Now, um, just before we move on to the next one, just just to go back a little bit, the Russian, the connection to the Rus- Russian mafia is a silly question, but but why why is that significant? That liaison between the government and the Russian mafia. Well, the Russian mafia arose after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. I mean, it had, it had existed before to a certain extent. There were a lot of criminal groups even in the late 80s, um, <clears throat> but it became particularly strong because there was a sort of a vacuum of power in Russia. And there was a, a free-for-all for, for, uh, for grabbing the um, resources of the Russian state. So the mafia kind of stepped in, and um, a lot of this uh, struggle to gain control of important assets um, was carried out with violence. And because, you know, it, there, there wasn't really a, a, a solid system of law and order that, uh, as, as it existed before the Soviet collapse, yeah. this opened up, um, it, it opened up the field for, for Russians to form these mafia gangs that were, um, you know, that had access to, vi- that employed violent means to, um, to get a hold of, uh, to grab, as I would say, the state resources, and it's 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 um, there's there's quite a bit of documentation um, pointing to the fact that that Putin himself, you know, he was working for the St. Petersburg mayor's office uh, in the early '90s, and that Putin himself had ties to this uh, mafia, in particular to the Tambov game, gang. And, um, you know, the mafia um, continues, actually, to this day to, um, to have ties with the, with the political leaders, although, you know, they're, they're murky and we, we don't know exactly to what extent. But the oligarchs definitely had to use the mafia to gain their wealth and their power. Yeah. And um, and and in some cases, the the mafia appeared to provide a useful cutout for some of these these deaths as well. Yes, exactly. the The mafia was used for um, to settle scores among different oligarchs, for example, mm. and um, they so they could sort of step back from it. But yes, the the mafia, uh, together with the Chechens. Um, has often been blamed for some of these uh, murders that we've seen. Yeah. Right. We're going to move on to another agency. There's one called the Procuracy that had an investigative function that was taken away from it because the the agency was becoming too powerful for Putin's liking. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about this agency? The Procuracy, or the Prosecutor General's Office, um, was one of the chief agencies for um, criminal investigations, for high-level investigations. And um, they, uh, after Putin assumed the presidency in 2000, um, the procuracy um, became a very powerful investigative organ, but it started to, um, its officials started to have conflicts with other members of of Putin's elite. And um, in 2007, the head of the procuracy uh, is a man named Yuri Chaika. and he's a he's a trusted Putin Putin um, ally, but um, he wasn't a Pitersky, um, and or a, a member of the former member of the KGB. So in in any case, in 2007, Putin decided to rein in the procuracy, and he created an independent investigative organ. Um, from the uh, investigation uh, body that had existed as part of the procuracy. That is called the Investigative Committee, and it's headed by Alexander Bastrykin. Uh, he has been the head of the um, Investigative Committee since 2007, and this is a very important agency 
because the investigative committee has played a key role in um, the investigation of uh, the various political murders that I talk about in my in my book. And another interesting issue that's come up is the um, the FSO because it's sort of designed to protect the leadership from coups, and it's sort of seen as the eyes and ears for Putin on other agencies. Can you talk to us a little bit about the FSO? Yeah, the FSO um, uh, is the Federal uh, Protection Service or the Federal Service of Protection, and it emerged from uh, this agency emerged from what used to be the Ninth Directorate of the KGB, the Guards mm. Directorate. So uh, in, in historically, the Ninth Directorate um, was one of its responsibilities was ensuring the safety of government leaders and guarding uh, government uh, premises. Mm. So this was a crucial role, but it also the Ninth Directorate was seen as the main uh, body that would, would protect the leadership against um, you know, any um, underlying threat. And also, the Ninth Directorate was responsible for the security of nuclear um, installations. Mm. So the um, the Federal Protective Service has assumed many of these functions, and um, for a long time, it's been thought to be the sort of the eyes and ears for Putin. Uh, it's it's a smaller agency, but um, the heads of the uh, Federal Protective Service have been known to just, you know, report directly to Vladimir Putin. So he views this as kind of his his special, uh, he has viewed it as his special guard, um, the ultimate protection uh, for Mr. Putin. Until 2016, um, the uh, FSO, or the Federal Protection Service, was headed by Yevgeny Murov, who is a Putin loyalist, um, its current head um, is Dmitry Kochnev, and um, there, there's very little known about him except that he had worked for a long time in the protective services. So he presumably is very loyal to Mr. Putin. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Putin's kind of created a new agency in Russia, which is the Russian National Guard, and it's, it, it sounded similar to a little bit to some of the um, functions of the FSO of being the eyes and ears of Putin. Can you talk to us a little bit about the National Guard? Yes, it, uh, that was created by President Putin in 2016, and significantly, he placed Viktor Zolotov, his buddy from Saint Petersburg. Um, uh, he made uh, Viktor Zolotov the head of this uh, agency, and um, it's basically its basic function is public preserving public order. So it's sort of the last bastion of, of uh, protection for the Kremlin in the event that there would be um, uh, civil unrest. Uh, this is something that the Kremlin, of course, is very always very worried about. So um, the National Guard, again, very loyal to Putin, and uh, it's an important uh, force to prevent unrest from getting out of hand and threatening uh, the Kremlin. Yeah. And um, then there's the FSKN, which was a powerful drug enforcement agency formed in 2004 and then disbanded in 2016. What's significant about that agency? Well, the federal, it's called, it's an acronym for the Federal Service of Control of Narcotics. Mm. Um, it was headed by a St. Petersburg ally of uh, a Putin named Viktor Cherkasov until 2006. Um, then Mr. Cherkasov began to get embroiled in some um, some conflict with other um, security agencies and security chiefs, um, and so he left. And a man named Viktor Ivanov was a name to head um, the the federal narco- anti-narcotic service. 
it's um, it became very powerful, and its purview was extended pretty much beyond narcotics. Um, and it, it finally um, was disbanded in 2016. And what was interesting is the former deputy head now has a Spanish arrest warrant out for him. Yes. Um, and am I right? It related, it was related to drugs, is that right? Yes, it was related to drugs. Yes, and I should add that, I mean, um, drug contraband and um, uh, drug trafficking is is a, has been and continues to be um, a, a, a huge enterprise for the Russian mafia, and and the oligarchs are connected to this mafia. So this anti drug agency was particularly important. Yeah, and and was it was it in a sense turning a blind eye? Yes, it was. It was very selective in um, in who it went after for. Um, for uh, criminal activities. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to the SVR, which is probably one of the better-known agencies. And this is Russia's sort of foreign intelligence services. Would I say it's sort of similar to MI6 and the CIA? Yes, the SVR is Russia's foreign intelligence service. Um, it was formed from the first chief directorate of the KGB, the foreign intelligence directorate. And um, it's a separate agency now. It, it, you know, it used to be part of the KGB. Uh, its headquarters are outside of Moscow at Yasineva. And uh, the head of the um, SVR is a man named Sergei Narishkin, uh, a Putin loyalist. Uh, the uh, Foreign Intelligence Service could could be um, compared to the uh, to Britain's MI6 or uh, the US CIA. Its functions are intelligence gathering, and um, but particularly um, um, what we used to call in KGB days active me- measures. And um, the um, SVR continues to carry out active measures today. Um, the purpose of these things, uh, these measures, which are basically um, disinformation or disinformatia, propaganda campaigns, um, and things such as uh, interfering in elections and trying to uh, in- influence the elections in democratic countries, just to give you an example. But the overall purpose is to um, undermine Western democracies. And um, so the the Foreign Intelligence Service is a very powerful organization, but it's um, it's kind of still shrouded in a certain amount of secrecy, and it's often difficult to um, to actually um, get to the bottom of their disinformation and uh, um, active measures campaigns because other agencies, such as the Soviet military intelligence, the GRU, do similar things. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's have a look at the GRU, because this is Russian military intelligence, isn't it? Yes, this is the main intelligence directorate, the GRU. Actually, um, it, just not long ago, it start, the, the, apparently the name was changed from, mm. from the main intelligence directorate to just the intelligence directorate. Um, it's not clear why, because um, it doesn't appear that the uh, GRU's functions have actually been uh, curtailed in any way. Mm. Um, but So this is Russia's military intelligence agency. It is under the general staff of the Soviet Army. And uh, the Russia's military intelligence, or the GRU, performs um, traditional espionage um, as well as more technical espionage. It has spy satellites, but um, um, its its traditional function, and it goes back many years to to the Stalin era, has been to gather intelligence on military-related activities um, in the West. Its current uh, chief is a man named Sergei Korobov, um, he has been the head of the GRU since 2016, and the GRU is believed to have been involved in some of the assassinations that have occurred 
uh, political assassinations abroad, including the recent um, attempt on the life of Sergei Skripal in the UK um, in 2000 this year. Uh, but I I think that there are there Mr. Skripal, as we know, was uh, a former officer, a former colonel in the GRU. But um, I I would say that there there are still questions about whether the GRU actually was the agency that carried out the the poisonings. I think it could have possibly been uh, the FSB as well. I mention this because. In 2006, the FSB had its um, its functions um, expanded, its mandate expanded to include actually carrying out um, assassinations of traitors and political opponents um, uh, abroad. So this could have been uh, an operation of the FSB or the GRU, because the GRU also carries out political assassinations. Yeah, yeah. And um, so am I right with the political assassinations? It seems to be the FSB might be the agency responsible for the sort of domestic killings, whilst the SVR stroke GRU could be involved with the killings internationally. Yes, but as I mentioned, the FSB was given functions to do that it was given the mandate to do um, counter-terrorism and counter-extremism, which is broadly interpreted um, in Russian as um, basically um, the fight against political enemies um, abroad. So um, the FSB was, for example, the agency that carried out the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko in um, in in London. So it's it's difficult to know um, which agency actually was responsible for some of these um, crimes. Yeah, yeah. Which, in a way, I suppose, is sort of uh, part of the the point, doesn't it? They want to make it difficult to exactly pin it back to Russia, don't they? Well, I would only say one thing, which is that. Um, the Kremlin and Mr. Putin ultimately has control over all these agencies. Mm. So whether it's the the SVR, the GRU, or the FSB, um, maybe not as important as the fact that if if it's one of these agencies, the um, orders would have been given by the Kremlin. So since Vladimir Putin has been president of Russia, there's been a large number of his critics and political opponents have come to a bad end. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? Yes, several of uh, of, of the critics of the Kremlin um, have, have come to a bad end since Mr. Putin came to power. And in fact, even before he became president in 2000, in um, 1998, when he was head of the FSB, the Federal Security Service, a prominent um, um, parliamentarian named Galina Starovoitova from St. Petersburg, uh, a Russian Duma member, was uh, gunned down in her apartment building, and they've never found, the Russian authorities have never found who did it. I don't know that I would blame Putin directly, but the fact that he was head of the FSB um, and was responsible for finding out who did it is is pretty important. It kind of set the stage for these further political assassinations. And I should also say that Starovoitova was very outspoken um, in her um, campaign to call former KGB uh, officials and Communist Party officials to account for what they did in the Soviet period. She was advocating... Um, a policy of so-called lustration, mm. where um, where the new regime looks back and 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 has um, these various um, crimes that were committed by the security and police in in earlier periods, they call to account these officials and bar them from government service. So Starovoitova represented quite a threat to Russia's security agencies. Um, then, um, just to mention, uh, um, some other murders, Paul Klebnikov, who was an American, he was a, um, the editor of Forbes Russia, and he was gunned down in, he was investigating corruption in Russia at high levels. 
He was gunned down um, just coming out of his office in Moscow in July 2004. His murder has never been solved. Um, his wife and his brother, who I interviewed, have um, gone to Russia repeatedly um, trying to get the support of the Putin regime to get to the bottom of who murdered him. But um, thus far, beyond blaming Chechen hitmen for, for the murder, no one has find it, found out who actually ordered the murder. Um, really, one of the most prominent um, uh, political opponents and critics of Putin who has been murdered um, was Anna Politkovskaya, who is a journalist for uh, the paper Novaya Gazeta. She was gunned down in the stairwell of her apartment building in October 2006. And um, Chechens, as uh, as often is the case, were, were blamed for uh, carrying out her murder. There were several trials, but no one has um, identified uh, who ordered the killing, uh, despite constant efforts by her family. And uh, Polikovskaya was a, a particularly virulent critic of, of Vladimir Putin himself, so he would have had strong motive to have ordered her, her uh, murder. Yes. Uh, then, of course, there is the example of Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned by polonium in November of 2006, just a month after Polikovskaya was murdered. Mm. He and Polikovskaya were friends. He had warned Anna that she needed to be careful and should probably leave Russia. Yeah. Now, we, we know, I think the, the Litvinenko case is probably one of the most important cases because for the first time we've had a proper investigation into the murder, um, the reason in Russia that we haven't found um, or that there haven't been proper investigations and uh, identifying uh, the people who were the masterminds, and this would include actually the murder of Boris Nemtsov in mm. February 2015, Putin controls all the investigative or organs. He controls the MVD, the FSB, um, and the investigative committee, all of which um, are authorized to carry out investigations of these political murders. But the men who, who run these investigations are Putin's friends and supporters. So they never get to the bottom of who the mastermind was. So with the Liftinenko murder, it's particularly significant that the British actually, after long efforts by Litvinenko's wife, Marina, finally have, held a public inquiry and in January um, 2016, Sir Robert Owen, who conducted the inquiry, came out with a report in which he, after exhaustive testimony and many, many, uh, a tremendous amount of research, Sir Robert Owen was able to say that two FSB-hired hitmen, Andrei Lugavoy and Dmitry Kovtun, actually were the men who poisoned Litvinenko um, with polonium-210. So this is, an, uh, you know, this is the first time we've actually been able to um, point the finger at Russia. Yeah. And there was so much evidence linking them from both CCTV to the radiation trail. It was, uh, you know, it was so obvious that they were connected. There's a counter information sort of campaign going on about the Scripple case right now. And a lot of people are sort of like, how could Russia be so obvious? But I mean, they were so obvious with the murder of Litvinenko. Well, yes. And, you know, it's very interesting. Um, in the Litvinenko case, these two killers were, were very sloppy mm. because they left a trail of polonium all over London and in the airplanes and in their hotels. And um, apparently uh, they weren't told, they weren't given proper proper training in, in, in how to use this poison. Mm. And it's interesting that in the, in the case of Skripal, um, the poisoning of Skripal and, and his uh, daughter, Yulia, um, we have now seen a similar phenomenon. The two men that are the prime suspects in carrying out this poisoning, actually, um, which was done with Novichok, um, a nerve agent, um, these two men um, 
were not cautious enough, and they actually managed to um, contaminate their hotel room. Yeah. And then they left this bottle of uh, this perfume bottle, uh, discarded it, which has has you know enabled the British authorities to establish a trail. Um, it, it's very interesting that what points to the Kremlin in both the Litvinenko and the in the Litvinenko murder and in the poisoning of the Skripals is that in both cases, these poisonings are um, only manu- manufactured in secret laboratories that would be under the direct control of the Russian government. So this really implicates the Russian government in both of these cases. Yeah, and historically we've seen so many cases where poison's been used by the Russian government to silence its critics. It's, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. There have been several murders, suspicious murders, of Russian oligarchs and critics, defectors, uh, and attempted murders in the UK. So uh, most people think that this kind of thing doesn't happen in the U.S. To a certain extent, this is true, but I I should point out that there was one very mysterious death in November of 2015 in a Washington, D.C. hotel room that has led uh, 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 journalists and, and other experts to wonder whether the Russians weren't, the Kremlin wasn't involved. And this is a man called Mikhail Lesin. He was at one point had been the head of Gazprom Media. Mm. He was a very powerful oligarch, very wealthy. Um, his uh, uh, his children live in uh, in California, I believe, and he had assets in California. So he died suddenly um, in his hotel room. And initially, um, and actually the story is still the same, American authorities, the FBI investigated, and they said that um, Lesson, who was a known um, heavy drinker or alcoholic, if you will say, uh, had died from, from falls that he had incurred stumbling while he was drunk. But there were rumors quite early on that, in fact, um, he might have been murdered. And part of the um, part of the story that was reported about the murder was that Lesson had been cooperating with the FBI and giving them uh, information about Russian oligarchs and uh, the Russian mafia and corrupt financial um, activities on the part of the mafia and and oligarchs. And uh, so this might have been a motive to um, do away with uh, Lesson by, uh, uh, by the Kremlin. Uh, but um, the uh, American authorities denied this, and they, and they, they said the murder was, uh, it, it was not a murder, that um, Lesson had died from these um, uh, self-inflicted uh, falls. Um, he had died from falling. But now we know from recent reporting by the New York Times that, in fact, um, the FBI, as far back as 2015, was making attempts to get information um, from Russian oligarchs who visited um, the United States. One example would be Oleg Deripaska, who they tried to recruit um, but were unsuccessful. So this, again, raises questions about whether the FBI was trying to recruit uh, Mikhail Lesson and whether or not he was cooperating with the FBI, which would, again, raise questions about um, his death in November of 2015 in Washington. Yeah. Well, look, Amy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you and a real honor to have you on. Can you just um, tell us where listeners can find out more about you and your work? I write for The Daily Beast. Um, which is an online publication in the United States. I write about Russia. Um, I'm working um, on a, a new book, and I also have a website called amynight.org, which can be accessed, um, and people can contact me through my website if they have further questions. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You're very welcome, Chris. I enjoyed it. 
Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.